welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, that that was uh, that was so beautiful that time of worship, and uh, thanks again to the worship team for all the great work you guys consistently do. And well, how you feeling this morning? Are you are you feeling comfortable? Are you still wearing your pajamas, or did you did you get changed and put on some sweatpants because you got really nowhere to go? Uh, are you are you sitting there with your favorite brand of coffee? And have you leveled up the pro and got some snacks for the service? Are you are you sitting in your favorite chair all reclined? I hope you're comfortable. And the reason I say that is because this morning's not going to be comfortable. It's it's meant to be uncomfortable. And, and I say that because uh, my goal this morning isn't just to, to teach you the Word of God. <clears throat> my hope this morning is to meddle. Meddle as, a, as someone who cares, someone who loves you. And uh, that <clears throat> that might be uncomfortable because the the passage where we're at right now is is Paul's beginning to do that himself. He's beginning to to look at what does it mean to be different? What does it mean to be a saint? Because that's what we are. We're called to be different. And how does that impact our life? How does that impact our lifestyle? And so that's what we're gonna that's what we're gonna begin to look at. But I I want it to be clear that this is what I'm giving isn't isn't my opinion. Uh, because it's really easy, I think, for people just to get up and share their opinions. And I think that's what's got us into a lot of our trouble. Instead, what I want us to see is what does Father's Word say about this? What is what is God telling us in terms of what it means when the rubber hits the road and when it comes to how we live? And so that's that's we're going to look at a whole bunch of verses, a lot of verses this morning to kind of stress that point that this is not my opinion, but Father's. So we're going to continue on in our study in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 10. Uh, Follow along with me on the screen if you want, but here we go. Uh, Beginning verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God, in kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are the light in the world, light in, light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we um, we're gonna we're gonna tread on some delicate area today, I think. And and it's not gonna be comfortable for some to hear. And yet I pray, Father, that above all else, that they would hear your love and your heart. That they would that they would know that what's being said is not out of anger, uh, not out of judgment or certainly no condemnation, but one really of just pure compassion and love and care. And so 
Uh, I'm going to trust you as best I know how, Lord, to, to give me the words, to say what you want to say, and we can experience the freedom that, that your word gives us. In your name we pray, amen. Well, <clears throat> for over 500 years now, the church has, has heralded the truth that, that Jesus Christ and his grace is the only way of salvation. It was the thanks to the reformers like Luther and Calvin and others who were, went up against the Catholic church and the Pope who were, were teaching something else, who were teaching that salvation was a product of, of not just God's grace, but your works and your behavior and your choices. It was a combination of that. And, and to this day, that difference is, is one of the major differences between the Catholic church and the Protestant churches. And, and so the question is, well, how do we know which one's correct? Well, fortunately, we, we can go back to what did the apostles teach? We can go back to the, the word of God and, and see what was laid out uh, there. And, and there are some very clear passages, easy to, to, to understand. A passage like we looked at many months ago, like Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, the, the result is, is not because of what we do. It's, it's solely by Jesus. It's his work. All we're doing is we're, we're placing our faith in him. We're receiving this gift, this gift of salvation from him. And, and then we go from being unrighteous and unacceptable and, and separated from God to becoming one that's now righteous, justified, saved, and one with God. And, and again, it wasn't because of what you do or didn't do. It was all because of what God has done. And so we like to put it this way at New Life, that, the, that who you are is not a product of what you do and how you behave, but rather it's a response that we made to God in faith. That, that God seeing that faith has then rewarded us or, or offered to us this gift of salvation that we've received from him. Now the mistake, however, that the church has made in these last 500 years, however, it all surrender, centers around this one question. What do we do now? So, so do we as believers, followers of Jesus Christ, who's made us righteous, made us saints, do we go back to the law? Do we go back to those rules and those, those formulas, go back to a system that couldn't save us in the first place <clears throat> and wasn't even meant to save us? And the answer is a resounding no, absolutely not. That that's not, not the purpose of the law, not the point of the law, and we're separated from the law now. And, and it's a major, it's a major issue. It's, it's been an issue within the church, not just for 500 years, but all the way to the beginning of the church. I mean, you, you read through the letters of the apostles and you see over and over again where they're battling against that, that pole. Uh, they're constantly uh, dealing with it. I mean, the entire books were written on this. Like the book of Galatians was written all about why we're not under the law, but now under something called grace. And so to... There are so many passages I could have chosen, but I want to I want to spend just a share just a couple with us, just to remind us again of why we need to be set free from the law. So the first passage I want to look at is 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 and 9. Paul here says, But the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones. He's referring to the law there. And notice he called it a ministry of death. He says it came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently on the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation, <clears throat> again, he's talking about the law. So he says the law is a ministry of death and it's a ministry of condemnation. The word ministry basically is it serves. 
So what does the law offer us? It doesn't offer us life. It doesn't offer us hope. It offers us death and condemnation. That's all it can give. That's all it can do. Or in, in Galatians chapter 3, beginning verse 23, Paul says, but before faith came, before you and I received this gift of salvation, we were kept in custody under the law, that the law had dominion and jurisdiction over us, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor, our, our child guide, to, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith, not by our works, not by our effort, not by what we do or don't do. But watch this. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. We're no longer under the child guide. That the law has served its purpose. And now we don't need the law anymore because we've got Jesus. We've got something way better than that. Or then we have a passage like Romans 6, 14, where Paul says, for sin shall not be your master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Over and over and over again, Paul's telling us it's not come to Jesus for salvation and then turn to the law for sanctification. That's how it's often presented to us. That we go back to the law to now try to teach us how to live and how to guide our life and, and how we can please God and so forth. And that's not the purpose of the law. Instead, what God has done is he set you and I free from the law. He set us free from the law system. Think about it. If that's not what the apostles were teaching, then why were they persecuted? Why was Paul you know, being persecuted by the Jewish authorities if, if he wasn't teaching such a heretical message in their minds? Because he was teaching that we didn't need the law of Moses. He was teaching we have something far better than that we have the person of Jesus. So the question I often get, and I think the question that Paul would have gotten as well is, well, does it matter then if we sin or not? Are, are there no consequences to those actions? And Paul answered that. So right in verse 14 of chapter 6 of Romans, he, he said that we're not under law but under grace, but he knew that would be the question. So in verses 15 and 16, he goes on to say, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Of course not. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. You see, there's still consequences to our actions, but those, those consequences don't include your standing with God. They don't include whether God will love you more or love you less. They don't include your salvation. It, it, it isn't about those type of consequences. Think about it another way. In Galatians 5, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, you are called to freedom, brethren. I mean, in verse 1, he says, it was for freedom's sake he set you free. Talking about the law. We are freed from the law. He goes, only do not return your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we saw last week, right? Where we looked at the fact that what God's calling us to is to love people now. So it's not about following the rules. It's not about following these commands. That's not what it's about. Because these commands are not about your standing or approval with God. Following his commands doesn't make God love us more. Not following him doesn't make him love us less. That's the human way of thinking, but not the divine way of thinking. Humans respond with love based on performance. God already knows how the performance is going to uh, turn out. He's already decided to love us. 
So these commands then, they're not about trying to, to earn something or achieve something. Really what these commands are, they're for our benefit. They're for my benefit, for from commands to me, but also for the, the benefit of those around me, my family and my friends and others. And, and so that's why Paul's giving these commands. And so there's all kinds of commands in the New Testament, but they're not about trying to earn something. They're not about trying to achieve something. They're really just about how do we live well? How do we live healthy? How do we make good choices? So let's, let's take a look at some of these commands then, beginning in verse 3. So again, Ephesians 5.3 says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not be named among you as is proper among saints. All right, let's, let's look at these three words a little bit. So immorality, the, the Greek word there is pornea. You can imagine what that, you know, what leads to that word, right? So that's where we get the word pornography from, right? So any kind of sexual sins would be under that immorality. And then impurity, is, it just means unclean. And so it's a broader sense. But notice he says any impurity. So any kind of uncleanliness. And then he's got greed in there as well, which I think is really interesting to include that one in there. So what Paul's doing in this verse three here is he's giving these commands, which is basically an overall description, in this case, of how not to live. That, that our lifestyle, he says, it shouldn't even, we shouldn't be named in there. That our lifestyle should be one where you cannot be characterized as being immoral or being impure or being greedy. That, that we ought to have nothing to do with that. Well, here's a big question then. And it's an important question. It's a question I think that the, the, the world and the, and the church and we all need to be wrestling with, but who gets to define what is moral? Right? Who, who gets to define immorality and morality? It's an important question. And again, I think both the culture, both our world and the church is trying to decide the answer for that. Now, from the world's perspective, they look at it this way. There, there's something called the Overton window. Now, the Overton window was a, a phrase that was coined by a guy named Joseph Overton. I guess if you coin the phrase, you get to decide the name of it and name it after yourself. And so they named it after him. And, and, and he was an American thinker in the, in the t- uh, 20th century. And, and what he was looking at was basically how over time things changed in terms of what is acceptable and what is proper in polite society. And so he's saying that what's happening is that Overton window is constantly shifting, moving back and forth, often being moved by the political parties. And what they're trying to do is figure out how do I get what I want to be in that window and what I don't want to be outside that window. And so that's what they're doing. So so think about it. So for example, things that used to be okay in polite society would include things like racism and slavery. Things like sexism, when, when women weren't allowed to vote, or, or even as you know, late in the 1950s, when, when you see how, how men looked down upon women and thinking that, that they were the inferior sex with the inferior mind. Even drunk driving was, was deemed okay at one point, and smoking, right? So those things were deemed okay, because in the Overton window at that point, it was okay. But over time, it shifted, and those things are no longer okay anymore. Conversely, things that used to not be okay have now come into that window or are now okay, right? So things such as like having children outside of wedlock or abortion and divorce or drums in the church, country music. I mean, I don't know if that one's ever going to be okay, but for some people, right? So here's another one. Sex on TV is a really interesting one. Think about the shows like I Love Lucy, 
right, back in the 1950s. You know, back then, they would have um, the, the Lucy, Lucy and Desi, they couldn't share the same bed. It was deemed too scandalous. So they had two twin-size beds separated because to have it be in the same bed together was scandalous. Even though they weren't just playing married people, they actually were married, but it was too scandalous. Well, nowadays, you, you watch a TV program and you know people meet and hours later they're in bed having sex. And, and so things have changed and all of that's being shown. And so you can see how things change over time with the culture. And so when you think about cultural revolutions like we saw in the 1960s and, and 70s and so forth, and even what's happening today, what ha what's happening is that the revolution is basically they're trying to take that Overton window and move it. Sometimes make it wider, sometimes make it narrower, sometimes move it along the political spectrum here. Now, my, my point here is not to find out when was the Overton window at its best, right? What, which century, which decade, and, and, and how do we get back to that? That's not the point. My point here is that that's how the culture is trying to define morality. But it's subjective. That it's changing over time. And, and it's what's used to justify all kinds of heinous crimes. Crimes such as slavery. Things such as abortion. It's being used to justify those things. But that doesn't mean it's okay or not. It doesn't mean it's right or not. It's instead, it's basically decided by popular opinion. Well, what about the church then? Because we see churches struggling with this question as well, and, and even trying to struggle with how do they fit in when they're opposed to the culture, right? So questions such as, should churches be affirming sex-same uh, relationships? In, in terms of, do they, do they just not, not talk about it? Or should they be blessing them? Should they be actually in, inviting and encouraging people in? Uh, what about the pastor recently who came out as transsexual and lost his job? Was that okay? Was that appropriate or not? Right? So these are all these questions that are being, being discussed and argued uh, within the church. And the argument basically that's it's pushing the church towards the, you know, falling in line with the culture more and more is that the church needs to enter the 21st century. That, that it needs to do so otherwise it won't be relevant because it won't make sense to, to the world. But here's the problem with that thinking. It's, it's not our job as the church to, to try to make Christianity or make God relevant to the world. He just is relevant to the world because the world is hurting. The world is suffering. The world is, is plagued by sin and death that Jesus has come to set free. He's already relevant. We don't need to make God relevant. He just is. But here's the other part. We're not supposed to live like the world either. See, Paul, Paul reminds us that we're saints in this passage. The, the word saint literally means different or called apart. That's what a holy one is. It's set apart. It's different. We're meant to be different. We're, we're not supposed to be the same. In fact, that's why Jesus says if, if salt loses its saltiness, then what good is it? If we lose our uniqueness, if we lose what's different about us, then, then why would the world even care? And, and I think the world knows this too. How many times has the world, the world looked at Christians who aren't behaving as such, who are, are living contrary to who they are, and, and they say, aren't, aren't you a Christian? Aren't you supposed to be loving? The world knows that. 
why they it we stand out so so sorely when we're not living the way we're supposed to be living. But here's the other thing that happens. Churches that try to become and fit in with the culture, they're the ones that die. I mean, there are whole denominations that have tried to become accepting and appeasing to the world and to the culture, and they're dying. That, that basically there's no young people coming, that they just have old you know, people with white, white hair, and as soon as they die, that's gone. Whereas churches that, that hold faithful to God's word, that, that teach the truth and proclaim the wonderful gospel and don't water it down, those are the churches that survive because the world respects that and sees an answer in that. And so, you know, us trying to, to, um, to water down the gospel to become more appealing makes us less effective and less powerful. But let, let me return to my previous question about who gets to decide what's moral. Is it the church or culture? And the answer is neither. Neither. Neither gets to decide. It, it's not about what does the world think, not does what does the church even think. It's God. He's the one that gets to define it. Because here's the, the one inescapable fact. God, who is the creator, he gets to define morality. He's the one gets to decide whether it's good or not. It's his call. He made all this. And he's the only one that's quite frankly qualified to do so because he's the only one that knows it. And so what he's done is through his apostles, through the scriptures, he has is, he is shared with us what is good and what is not, what is healthy and what is not. Our problem is the world, quite frankly, doesn't care because they don't, they don't respect God. They don't, they don't really ultimately care what God thinks because they haven't respected God as both Lord and creator over all. Instead, what they've done is, is they've, they've decided in their mind, believing that they themselves know what's right or wrong, that they themselves know what's best. In essence, what mankind has done is he's made himself to be his own God, which is a form of idolatry, which, as we'll see, is an important phrase, so keep that in mind there. But man, through his idolatry, has made himself as God. Listen to how Paul put it in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 25. He says, therefore, God gave them over to their over, sorry, God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity, so that in their bodies they would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Really, it's the lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The lie. They believed the lie. They, they exchanged God for themselves. See, Paul's talking about back in the garden. Think about it. When, when, when the choice before them was, do I eat of the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And they chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And thereby thinking that they would be like God. They would be their own God. They could now be the ones to decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong. And they get to be now the deciders of morality. But they're still not God. They're still not. And so what we need to do is we need to come back to Father's word and see, well, what does Father's word say about that? And there's a number of lists that we could look at. 
In fact, we could have kept reading on in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 onward, and we'd see a list there. We'd see one in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. There's a lot of different lists that we could we could pull up here, but we're going to look at a couple in particular. So the first one I want to look at is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Paul here writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's the word parnos, so similar to immorality, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, that's the word for greed, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Some, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were forgiven. You were made clean, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. Those are some difficult words to, to read there. But again, I want to make it very clear that, that you may struggle with those things, but that doesn't define who you are. Remember, and the reason why we open up with that, just reminding ourselves about the difference of law and grace, is that it's so easy for us to define ourselves by our behavior. That's not what Paul's doing in this list. Remember, he says, some of you were that. Some of you were drunkards. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were homosexuals and effeminate. Some of you were immoral and impure and greedy. But God's washed you. He sanctified you and he's justified you by the work on the cross solely not because of what you do or don't do. But we can begin to see here in that list, Paul laying out for us what's good, what's healthy, what's pure, what's moral, and what's not. Or we have another verse, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, where Paul lays out the, the deeds of the flesh. And it's a really important phrase there, I think, that the works of the flesh or, or what the flesh produces. Remember, the flesh is not you. It's not your sinful nature. So if you have an NIV Bible and it says the, the, the works or deeds of the sinful nature, scratch out the, the word sinful nature and write flesh above it and then throw the Bible out. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that one. But, but cross off sinful nature because that's not true, right? It's the deeds of the flesh, which is in you but not you. And this is what the flesh will look like. He says the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality. Again, pornea, that's a similar word to earlier. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Sorcery. Now, the word for sorcery is pharmakia, where we get pharmaceutical from. So sorcery isn't just witchcraft. <clears throat> sorcery could be here, could be drug use. So whether it's, you know, getting high on, on marijuana or, or crack cocaine or heroin or methamphetamines or all, even prescription drugs maybe, where we become addicted to them. And then we have enmities or hatred. Strife, contention, and fighting, and jealousy, and outbursts of anger, and disputes, dissensions or divisions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, which is like flirting, and things like these which I have forewarned you. So it's not even an exhaustive list. Just as I have forewarned you, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, our, our world would look at that list and it would say, well, again, culture's changed. The Overton window's moved. And, and in fact, when you think about certain sins, such as homosexuality, for example, well, you know, that, that's about love. 
And, and you know, it doesn't hurt anyone. It's just between two consenting adults. So, so what does it matter? Or, or, you know, even beyond that, think about, um, uh, you know, relationships that involve more than two people, right? Polyamorous type of relationships where, again, all consenting adults, what does it matter? Open relationships, what does it matter? As long as they're consenting, it's all about expressions of love. But, but the reality is we don't understand what love is then. And, and in fact, we, we also don't understand what sin is. So here's a, here's a definition of sin that I think might help us. Sin is getting a God-given need met in a God-forbidden way. See, the, the need isn't wrong. The need is how we're designed for. We're, we're designed to have those needs. The question is, how do we go about solving it? How do we go about getting those met? And the world would say, well, it doesn't matter how you do it. But, but it does. Because only God's way actually leads to life. The flesh always profits nothing, John 6, 63. Only the spirit gives life. Let's, let's look at it this way. And, and let's look at some studies, right? So studies have consistently shown that the rates of depression and suicide and self-harm are significantly higher within the LGBTQ community, significantly higher than the rest of the population. Now, the, these studies have been used to push the, the need for, for why society needs to be more accepting, more tolerant and more approving because these people are struggling, these people are hurting. And that's why we shouldn't speak out against it. But think about it. We currently live in a time where there's, it's never been more accepting in modern history. I mean, you watch commercials and you will find there will be that couple or, or the person who fits within the LGBTQ spectrum. That, that society, companies, advertising, TV shows have the characters, movies have it. it, it there's never been a, a time where, where it's more accepting, where communities are, are, are rallying around uh, for those who come out and, and there's constantly being a positive reaction to it. And yet, with all that acceptance, with all that, that freedom that, that comes from living this authentic life, the rates of depression and suicide and self-harm are significantly high, especially in those who are transgendered. Could it be that, that the reason for the higher rates from those who adopt this lifestyle is that, that they were hurting before and that, that the reason that it doesn't satisfy is what's causing those, that, that greater depression and self-harm. That they thought, if I could just come out, if I could just live my authentic life, then everything would be fine and everything would be all right. Only to find out that it's not, which leaves them only more desperate and more hurting. It's like how eating junk food to satisfy your hunger, it puts food in your belly, but it leaves you feeling more gross, more tired, and more messed up than before because it's not healthy food. And that's, that's the reality of what sin is, is it's unhealthy food. It, it doesn't satisfy what we need in a healthy way, leaving us more desperate. Like drinking salt water doesn't quench your thirst, it only leaves you thirstier. See, God's not some cosmic killjoy. He, he's not trying to rob people of pleasure and fun and good times. Instead, he's like a parent to little children who knows what's best 
And little children left to their own devices, they would eat chocolate cake and ice cream and chocolate bars and candy, and that would be breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And they would eat it all the time. But they'd be sick, they wouldn't grow, they'd be very, very unhealthy. And that's what God understands. That's what God knows. He knows what's good and he knows what's harmful to us. And he's warning us against those things. And so when it comes to these prohibitions of immorality and impurity and greed, it's because those things are sin and because they're harmful to us. Keep in mind, Romans 6, 6, or Romans 6 verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. This is not, it's used as a passage for salvation, but it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about the choices we make. And if we choose a path of immorality and impurity and greed, you will reap from that death, emptiness, frustration. But if we choose to trust Jesus, we experience life. Well, there's another common objection that we hear from people all the time. And, and depending on the kind of sin they're struggling with, but the objection goes something like this, but I was born this way. My answer is maybe. Maybe you were. I mean, think about it. We were all born sinners, were we not? Right? We all, we all came to this planet born as a sinner, meaning that there was something fundamentally wrong with us. And, and we're all, you know, fundamentally wrong maybe in slightly different ways. So some would have a tendency towards lying. And some would have a tendency towards alcohol. And, and some would have a tendency towards drugs and other addictive personalities. And, and some would be, have a tendency towards outbursts of anger. And, and some maybe towards greed and gluttony, some towards gossiping, and, and some with the worst of all sins, religiosity. You see, we're, we're maybe, maybe um, I don't know if say programmed as much as just there's part of us that is wired towards particular sins more than others. I don't disagree with that. So wouldn't it make sense that, that some would have a disposition towards immorality? like lust and homosexuality and uh, maybe transgendered and, and adultery and, and, and so forth? Of course. It's not that God made you that way. See, that's, that's the lie in there. God didn't make us sinners. He came to redeem us from being sinners. And so just because I'm wired that way isn't an excuse towards that sin because the gospel changes everything. Right? Because the gospel, the good news, the cross wasn't just where you and I were forgiven. Because then we'd be forgiven but still wired towards those sins. Instead, there's been a transformation that the old self was crucified with Christ and no longer lives. You're a new person that's been made right, justified, made righteous, made in the likeness of God, in holiness and righteousness and the truth. That's who we are now. That, that we have a new nature. Now we're still tempted. We're still tempted by the flesh. And it's gonna to try to pull us in those different directions because it's worked in the past. So it's not that the temptation goes away, but because I have a new nature, I can live differently now. I don't have to live that way anymore. And so those thoughts that come into my mind, those ideas, those desires, I need to realize they're not my desires. It's not who I am but I can now reckon myself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in Romans 6, 11. 
but it's more than just the sensational sins of, of homosexuality and transgender and, and adultery and so forth, right? It's bigger than that. And I think we need to be very careful that, that we don't jump on those people because it's, it's easy to do so because that's not what Paul's limiting himself to, right? He says immorality, but any impurity and greed. So he's speaking in a broader terms. It's a bigger list of things that he's, he's trying to address here. And, and this is where it might get uncomfortable for us, but he's talking about the movies we watch or the, the TV shows that we watch to entertain us, the, the music we listen to, or the podcasts we listen to, to to entertain us or to educate us. Maybe the, the way we dress, Maybe, maybe even how we talk to the opposite sex in terms of how, how flirtatious we are. You see, it's bigger than just the obvious sins. And then again, I, I'm so glad he included greed on this list because, you know, too often we ignore that one, right? But let's not skip it over too quickly, right? Because, because what he's saying is, is it's just as bad as the immorality and any impurity. So much so that he's, he's named it. And I say that because think about it, in the church, we've seen people, we've seen pastors, but you know, not just pastors, being excommunicated, thrown out of the churches because of immorality. But when was the last time you saw someone thrown out because of greed? I know a lot of greedy pastors out there. And yet it becomes a socially acceptable sin. But, but Paul includes it in the same list. So... So how do we know what's okay and what's not okay? Well, we're going to get to that later on because Paul's going to address that, I think, towards the end of this passage in chapter in verse 10, sorry. But, but before we go on any further than this, I want to ponder a question because I pondered this question this week. Why, why would Paul write this? I mean, he's writing to Christians, right? He's, he's writing to saints, to, to the people in Ephesus. Why would he include these commands? Because who he's writing to are, are again, they're saints, they're righteous, they're, they're, they're justified, they're, they're made clean. But the only answer that makes sense to me is that despite being true that they were saints who were made clean, they struggled with these sins. And then I, mean, then I got thinking a bit more about the, the city of Ephesus. Right? So here's some of the things about Ephesus. It was Some, some thought it was the, the largest city outside of Rome in its day. It was very affluent and very wealthy because it was a port city. So all kinds of trade was going back and forth through the city. Uh, it, was, it, uh, it was the home of the temple of Artemis, who's also known as Diana, depending on whether the Greek or Roman god or goddess. And that temple was so big, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, Artemis was the goddess of fertility. And so the temple worship there was, was highly sexualized. You could, you could um, have pro pay for prostitutes or, or engage in all kinds of other sexual rites. Uh, so very sexual worship there. And as a result, the whole city was charged sexually. It was sort of an anything goes kind of place. Does any of that kind of sound familiar? Very rich, very affluent, very sexually charged culture. I mean, you could say that about today in our culture that we're in right now in, in the West. In, in North America, in Canada, here in Ontario. So I, I share that because 
I want to encourage those who are struggling with immorality, those who are struggling with any impurity, and those who are struggling with greed, that you're not alone. In fact, I don't know many people, if any, that, that don't struggle with it in some degree, that, that we all struggle with it. I struggle with it in times. So I want you to know is, is that you're free to struggle. It's okay to struggle. What's not good is to not struggle with it. When, when we come to a place where we just kind of, you know, shrug our shoulders or throw our hands up and say, well, it doesn't matter. And we just give in to that sin and we accept it and we adopt it as part of our lifestyle. That's what Paul's speaking here. And so what I want you to know is, is if you're struggling with this right now, and, and you're, you're hearing this, please do not hear condemnation from me. Please don't hear judgment against you. That's, that's not why I bring this up. I bring this up because, because I want you to find that there's hope and there's healing. And I really do believe that there are people here at New Life that you will find that are willing to sit with you through this that are willing to love you through this, that, that you will find what church is meant to be, a place that is so safe that the worst of you could be known, that any impurity, any, any immorality, any greed that you're struggling with, all of that could be known and you won't be loved less. Instead, you'll be loved more because you invited us in to allow that love to meet you in your hurt and your pain that you'll allow, you allow other people to stand alongside you that will walk with you and help you find healing and freedom in Jesus. That's what we meant to be. That's, that's what we're supposed to be as a church. But that's not what's often happened, is it? I mean, if we're honest, that's, that's not what churches have often done. Often what happens is when, when churches come across any kind of immorality or impurity or greed, what do they do? They Well, they they smack them, quite frankly. They begin to berate them. They, they begin to, to go kind of all Westboro Baptist on them and condemn them and call them names and, and threaten them. Or they, they tell them they need to try harder. They need to, to pull up their bootstraps and, and you know, they, they need to be more grateful for all that God's done. And, and then we, we put guilt and shame on them, hoping that it will manipulate them to better choices. Or we threaten them with God's anger, threaten them with punishment, or, or maybe even worse, curses or, or losing their salvation. And maybe if they don't quit their drinking and their adultery and their lustful, weed-smoking, porn-watching ways, then we'll just kick them out and want nothing to do with them. I wish I could say that's not what the church has done, but that's, that's what we've seen too often. Just these last few months, we, we saw a, a famous pastor who is, who is wrong in his sin and his immorality, he was committing adultery in his wife, but it's grieved me to see how the church has just thrown him under the bus. That's not the way. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 6 and verse 1. He says, brethren... Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, you who, you who are the mature ones, 
Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one look into yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So what do we do? The answer is we love them. That's our response. It doesn't mean we agree with their sinful choices. It doesn't mean that we, we, we go along with it, but we do love them. And, and I know you hear that cliche, well, you, you hate the sin, but you love the sinner. Cliches are, cliches are, are, are often empty. But there's some element of truth in there. But I think more importantly, we come alongside them and we love them. We offer them support. And we try to find out why are they choosing that sin? Why did they think that sin will be an answer to their hurt and their pain? You see, I, I've spent many hours as a counselor confronting people in their sin, but doing it because I love them, because I care about them, willing to sit with them to help them find the freedom in Jesus. I love, I love the quote my friend Frank uses all the time about how he's got a plaque in his office that says, Grace sat down with me until I was ready to walk again. That, brothers, that, sisters, that's what we get to offer this people. We get to offer one another and that kind of love, the world will see it. And the world will say, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I want. All right, let's keep going because that was just verse three and um, we got to get to verse 10. So verse four, verse four, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Now, does this mean that we can't have fun, we can't joke around? Clearly, that's not the case. We love to have a good time. That's not what he's talking about. What he is talking about is, is our language, though, our words and how we speak. As Proverbs 18, 21 says, death and life are in the tongue, right? James talks about how, how the tongue can, can set a, a, a whole forest on fire, talking about the level of devastation that our words can handle and have. So it doesn't mean that we can't have fun. God invented humor right? So that's not the case. What Paul's talking about is this harsh and critical humor that's meant to tear down. The, the sarcasm that we see in, in TV talk shows or in, in satire and that are meant to mock and destroy, whether they be political leaders or, or entertainers or others, that's what he's talking against. That doesn't mean you can't have fun. That doesn't mean you can't even tease one another. There's a, there's a great quote in the book, uh, Bo's Cafe, where, where the writers there, John Lynch and others, they were trying to, to display what a community of grace could look like. And he talks about how they would get together at this Bo's Cafe, and they would just get together and share and laugh and joke with one another. And, and this one guy, Andy, is being teased by everyone else on the deck. And this other character, Stephen, he's seeing this, and he's, he's coming to a conclusion, though, about all this teasing. And, and it says here, it goes, sitting here among the laughter, I realize that I'm watching something uncommon. It's obvious that everyone of, on this deck deeply respects Andy. Their humor seems more of a way of honoring him. It's very different from the kind of humor, mocking humor at work. There's no hard, cynical edge, nothing competitive. They aren't really ridiculing him at all. Quite the opposite, actually. So we can have fun, we can tease, but it's, it's meant as an expression of love. Not, not that meant to bite, not that meant to cut, 
that meant to criticize. Verse five, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person, person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ, kingdom of Christ of, and God. Now here's the thing. It's easy for us to say, well, there are parts of my life that, that are immoral. There are parts of my life that are unclean. And there are parts of my life that are greedy. I can, I can say that without any doubt. And unfortunately, this of all Sundays, Joy is here to completely back me up and I'm in trouble, right? Of all the Sundays for her to be here. So there's no question about that. Does that mean I fit on this list? No, because he made this qualification. Who is an idolater? See, it's not that those who struggle with immorality and impurity and greed don't have an inheritance. It's those people who are an idolater. And because they're an idolater, they're turning to their immorality and impurity and their greed to satisfy themselves. They're missing out on what God offers them. He's talking about the unbeliever. He's talking about those who've rejected Jesus. So verse six goes on, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's not an easy thing to see. I, I wish, I wish universalism was real and true. That everybody gets to heaven. Everyone, it just, it doesn't matter. Jesus has saved the world. I wish that was true, but it's not. It's not, that's not what scripture teaches. We see it here that the wrath of God remains on those who are disobedient, who have rejected God. Listen how Jesus himself put it. In John 3, 36, he who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey, he who does not believe, he who has not placed their faith in Jesus, they will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So he, he's contrasting, he says, listen, you're not like these people. You're, you're, you're not like them. They're, they're in a world of trouble, which is why we want to evangelize, why we want to rescue them and, and, and reconcile them to God and, and let them know that God's done that work. But that's not who we are. So in verse seven, therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, right? Don't live like them. Don't, don't follow their path. You were like that, but something's changed. There's been a transformation. You're no longer a sinner. You're not even a sinner saved by grace. You're a saint who sometimes sins but you're a saint nonetheless. You're a child of light. So let's live that way now. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. The result of those good choices of trusting Jesus and following his path always leads to health, to goodness. And so we ought to be trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. See that last line, verse 10, I think is really instructive for us. You see, the mistake we'd make here is now we start to make a list, right? What music do you listen to? What music do we not listen to? And we all know what's on the list of what not listen to, right? And, and what movies do we watch? And, and what TV shows do we watch, not watch, right? And, and we, we can make these lists and where do we go and what clothes do we dress and, and so forth. And that's what, that's what many of our, our friends have done, right? Our, our Mennonite friends, for example, that's the path they've, they've followed. And, and they think that if we can create these rules, that's going to keep us safe. That's what's going to protect us. 
But that's just going back to the law. That's not what he's saying to us. I think verse 10 tells us, because it's much more about behavior, he's saying here, learn, learn what it is that is pleasing to the Lord. The word they're trying to learn would be better to be translated as discerning. And so what that means is, is we talk to God about that. It is we, we invite Jesus to tell us. You see, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, a church that was definitely struggling with immorality, definitely struggling with impurity, definitely struggling with greed. I mean, they were getting drunk. They were, they were overeating at, at communion at the Lord's table. They were, they were, one man was sleeping with his father's wife. They were arguing about over who was the better Christian because who do they follow and so forth. All kinds of problems in there, in that church. And Paul, he has these two verses, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 and 10, 23. But basically it says this. In both those verses, he says, all things are lawful. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Not all things are beneficial. Not all things edify, and I won't be mastered by any of it. So here's what we can do. Here, we can take, we can take the, the things that we're using to entertain us. The things that we're using to feed our, our bodies, that we're using to feed our souls, our minds. And we can ask Jesus now, Jesus, is this, is this beneficial for me? I mean, does it, does it help me to watch that, that sexual show? Does it, does it help me to think about that person in this way? Does it, does it really benefit my marriage if I talk to that woman or that man that's not my husband or my wife in this way? We invite Jesus to begin to tell us what's right or not, what's not right, what's healthy and not healthy. So that's what he means by trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord, trying to discover what is it that Jesus wants to do in me right now, right? Philippians 2, 13, 12 and 13, for God's in you both to will and to do what's pleasing to him. So we talk to Jesus. So there isn't a rule book. There isn't a law. There isn't some list that you follow you ask Jesus, and you see, what did Jesus want to say to you about, again, the entertainment, about the lifestyle choices we're making, how we, how we um, conduct ourselves in our job, in our workplace, how we treat our family, what we do when we're just alone with our phones, the language we use, how we care for other people. Let's invite Jesus to show us what's healthy and what's not healthy. Keep in mind this, that again, it's not about performance. It's not about earning God's love. He will not love you more or less if you make good or bad choices. It's about you experiencing life opposed to experiencing death. A life that will benefit not just you, but those around you, your family, your friends, and the rest of us here at New Life. We need to experience Christ in you. And that can't happen when we choose the path of immorality and impurity and so forth. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, those are some heavy words, I feel. And I'm, I'm grateful to know that as we leave here and we end the, the, the broadcast and the video at that your Holy Spirit's in us and with us. And that you will, you will speak to us in a way that will affirm that you love us no matter what. And that it's okay to struggle. 
and it's okay to, to not live perfectly all the time. That's not what you expect. But what you want us to do is to trust you in this moment. That's all that matters is in this moment. And that we would then take you upon your offer when you offer us a healthy way to get our needs met. And for those, Father, who are struggling in a big way right now, who, who find themselves overwhelmed by these sinful lifestyle choices, would you, Father, give them the courage to reach out and help? And that, that you, would, you would send them to someone that would have the spiritual maturity to come and sit with them until they're ready to walk again. That would love them with a spirit of gentleness until they're experiencing the freedom that you purchased on the cross. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.